IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. Uh, I'm the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine and several anthologies such as uh, Wastelands, which is about uh, life after the apocalypse, or Brave New World, which is about uh, dystopian societies. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Blood of Virgins, about a surreal alternate world in which college students ride dragons. The story appeared in Realms of Fantasy Magazine and is episode 88 of the Escape Pod podcast. And our guest today is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium and a research associate in the Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. Since 2006, he's hosted the TV show Nova Science Now on PBS and has been a frequent guest on The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, and Jeopardy. Discover Magazine rated him one of the 50 best brains in science. Time Magazine voted him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And People Magazine rated him the sexiest astrophysicist alive. His most recent books are Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic Quandaries and The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. It doesn't it make you sad that no one ever votes uh, on who's the, the sexiest science fiction writer or editor on the planet? I mean, <laughs> we just get shafted on that all the time. I mean, astro they, they voted the, the sexiest astrophysicist alive, really? Come on, we can sur- surely some science fiction writers should get some love or something. I guess if people want to, you know, vote for the sexiest science fiction writer, they can, uh, you know, post a comment uh, on, the, on our episode. <laughs> All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thanks for joining us on the show. Happy to be with you guys. Uh, okay, so first of all, just what are some of the recent developments in astronomy that uh, have you the most excited? Uh, in the recent weeks, uh, I think the the discovery by the Kepler telescope of a, a thousand exoplanets, of which 40 to 50 of them are surely Goldilocks planets, I think is, for me, leads the news of the month. And these Goldilocks planets are, of course, a, a particular interest as we flesh out our portfolios of what other solar systems look like. Because, of course, that would be the, if you were able to target planets in the search for life, that's where you would begin. With these exoplanets, is it possible to use a telescope and look at them and say whether there are alien civilizations on them? Well, so so that's the the first thought is, can you look close enough to see cities or or any kind of evidence of of intelligence or at least some kind of evidence of life? And it turns out there's an entire cottage industry that has arisen, and it's the it's it's in the world of astrobiology. And the exercise is to try to find biomarkers on exoplanets. And a biomarker isn't the direct evidence of life itself, but the indirect evidence of what life has done to the atmosphere or the surface of the planet. And, for example, if you look at most science fiction stories that are told where people go jetting around the galaxy, they'll analyze the atmosphere of a planet and say, oh, this will sustain life. It has an oxygen atmosphere and then they go land on it well okay that's that was then but today what we know is that if there is an oxygen atmosphere it's not simply that it can sustain life as we know it it's that life created that atmosphere oxygen itself is not stable 
over a given time scale. Uh, it's a highly reactive molecule. And in order for there to be oxygen stable in an atmosphere means there has to be life already there. So if we look into the atmospheres of these planets and find oxygen or methane or some other bit of chemistry that's unstable unless there's some something pumping it into the system uh then you're if you see it you you you're left with no other conclusion than that there's some active biology going on on the planet's surface i mean that would tell you whether there was life or not right would we have any way of knowing whether it was intelligent uh sort of industrialized civilizations that kind of thing yeah i've been as I've in my aging years, I've become more and more cynical of any definition we might put forth regarding what's intelligent out there, because of course we define ourselves as intelligent, and and I ask myself what even gives us that right to judge ourselves to be intelligent, because we're coming up with our own definitions, and so of course we're going to look pretty good compared with other animals in the world, but I you can imagine some species vastly more intelligent than we are where why should we even think we have any hope of communicating with them? Consider that we haven't had a meaningful conversation with any other species of life on Earth with whom we have DNA in common. And take the chimp, for example, mere trifling difference in our DNA, but you're not having extensive conversation with them about anything. Because by our measure, they're just too stupid to understand even our simplest thoughts. So I just imagine that same increment of intelligence to some other alien that could inhabit another planet, and we somehow believe we're going to have a conversation with it, maybe their simplest of thoughts are, maybe we're just simply not smart enough to understand their simplest of thoughts, any more than a chimp is smart enough to understand our simplest of thoughts. And if that's the case, they surely would not judge us to be intelligent. And so I've stopped even thinking about intelligence the way we always had traditionally thought about it, and I'm just looking for life at all. Life at all would be striking, would be extraordinary, and it would transform our understanding of modern biology, because biologists today, as much as they like to celebrate biodiversity, fact is, at the end of the day, behind closed doors, they have to confess to themselves they only have a sample of one, because all life on Earth has common DNA. And if you have a sample of one, that's not the best scientific state you want to be in. You want to have multiple samples of things you can compare and contrast and find out what is fundamental to life and what is not. You cannot know that without having multiple examples of the phenomenon you're studying. So I think initially, given the prevalence of microorganisms throughout most of the history of the Earth, if we're going to find another planet that has life, you just do a random draw on when you land on the history of life on that planet. And if Earth is any measure, we're simply going to find microorganisms and not the intelligent life that we all seek or dream about in science fiction storytelling. A recent article in the Journal of Cosmology prompted hundreds of people to declare themselves willing to volunteer for a one-way trip to Mars. Um, what do you think about that? The premise is, oh, it's expensive to go to Mars, so let's only send you one way. If you have enough money to send someone to Mars, you have enough money to bring them back. When we run out of funding for big, expensive projects, it's rarely because you just miss it by a factor of two right? Or three. You miss it by factors of tens or hundreds. So sending people to Mars one way is not going to be the financially deciding factor about whether we go to Mars. So I think it's a false conversation. 
the the real more interesting question is if our next spaceship to mars based on all measures of the technology have a 40% chance that you will die on mars because something's going to break down and we can't save you now who still wants to go to mars that's the interesting case to address and i think yes the line will be wrapped around the block multiple times and these you don't need the one way scenario to still tease out of our population the bravest among us who will take that risk because the return on that risk is so high given that they may be the first to walk on mars uh, so one of your books is called uh, death by black hole um so what would actually happen if someone were to fly a spaceship into a black hole yeah you get you get ripped apart it's a kind of fun way to die if you had to pick one and it wouldn't just happen to your spaceship it would happen to you and everything on board the the black hole is sufficiently small that you can get very close to its center before you even touch the surface of the object, whatever that surface is. And if you get close to the center of an object as a source of gravity, the higher and higher is the gravitational field in which you sit. Unlike Earth, you can't get closer than 4,000 miles to Earth's center because Earth is 4,000 miles in radius. So there's a maximum amount that you could possibly weigh that's standing on Earth's surface. But if Earth shrunk, maintaining its mass, and you're on this surface of the Earth that's shrinking down with it, you're getting closer and closer to the center of the Earth. Your weight goes up. So as you descend to a black hole, it'll pull your feet faster than it'll pull your head as the rate of this gravitational force increases. And you begin to stretch, which is not ordinarily a problem. You know, everyone doesn't like a good stretch. But you'll learn that this is an unrelenting stretch. <laughs> and the stretching forces then begin to exceed the forces that bind the molecules of your flesh, and then you snap into two pieces. And then the, uh, the two pieces above and below, the snapping point would then stretch, just as the original piece did, and they would snap into a pair of pieces. So you go from one to two to four to eight to 16, right on down. And so you get, and plus you're not only that, you're getting funneled down through the fabric, the na ever narrowing fabric of space and time. And that funneling, you're not only getting stretched head to toe, you're getting narrowed shoulder to shoulder. You combine these two effects, we have a word for that, and it's called spaghettification. Mm -hmm. And that's the art of dying by falling into a black hole. So what would happen if you were to leave your ship without a spacesuit on? And um, are there any movies that have depicted that correctly? A few have attempted it. And like, take, for example, was it Mission to Mars, where... The tether didn't reach far enough to get the guy, and he didn't want them to come save him. And it was his girlfriend or something. And then he flicked open his helmet so that he would on purpose die, so that they wouldn't all die trying to save him. And then his face just kind of, it, I don't know, it got really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Mummified face. It was the guy who was in Shawshank Redemption. Uh, what's the guy's name? Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins, yeah. So he, whichever Mars movie he was in, <laughs> where, and and it wouldn't happen that fast. People say, "Oh, space is cold." No, the only thing that makes something cold is all about the rate at which you lose energy. Period. And so space is cold. So normally, your ninety-eight point six degree skin radiates to. Uh, it could radiate to the walls of your of your room, 
which is why some rooms feel really warm because they're radiating back to you. The walls are radiating back to you. But if the air temperature is at some other temperature, higher or lower than your body temperature, the, the room will feel cold to you or warm to you. In space, it's all just radiative. So you will radiate your body heat into space, and there's no heat coming back to you. So you'll start feeling cold very quickly. But it's not, it's not like you're not going to freeze faster than if I dunked you in an icy lake where liquid 32-degree water is touching your skin. You'll be dead in 10 minutes or less, okay? Because water absorbs heat. Liquids absorbs heat from your skin much faster than the vacuum of space will, the radiate, radiating into the vacuum of space. So you can survive the temperature. You can survive the cold. Now, if you happen to be facing a star, then there's radiation coming at you from the star, and then, and then you can overheat on that side. So what you really need to do is build a little rotisserie for your <laughs> rot right? So you don't get too cold too fast, bring that round to the sun, and you're fine. Now there's the pressure problem. Your body will start to outgas. You have dissolved gases inside of your your flu your body fluids. So that won't be good. You'll get a bad case of the bends, basically. And but that still takes a couple of minutes. The gases still have to sort of come out. They have to figure out that they're not being surrounded by a one atmosphere pressure. So uh, so really uh, the the portrayal in the movie two thousand and one is probably the best. He held his breath. He had to come back through the pod bay or whatever that the, the entry was that Hal didn't want him to come through. Dave, you know, Hal will have to come through the airlock. That will be difficult <laughs> without your helmet. You know, and so he goes without, he doesn't have his helmet, right? So he, because he left quickly to try to retrieve his buddy and forgot to take his helmet. So he holds his breath, goes through, you know, you, you work quickly, he's fine. He doesn't explode. He doesn't implode. He doesn't vaporize. He doesn't freeze instantaneously. And consider that it's only one atmosphere pressure difference between what you're used to in space. You can swim underwater and be under two, three, four atmospheres of water pressure. And, you know, implode. You know, your body adjusts, adjusts, and adapts. It's fine. Uh, so what are some of the other, like, strangest, most unusual ways that people might die in outer space? Uh, I got one for you. So uh, how about us? we collide with another galaxy? Milky Way collides with another galaxy. Stars aren't going to collide. They're too far apart from each other. But you can feel each other's gravity. If a star gets a little too close to Earth, then that star's gravity could be stronger on us than our own lovely sun's gravity might be on us. If that's the case, you can have kind of a flyby looting of planetary populations by stars that went a little too close from one solar system to the next. And so that would be bad. Or if it doesn't steal us entirely, it could fling us off into a random other direction. So do you think humanity will ever uh, travel to the stars or are the distances involved just too big? No and yes. No, we'll never travel to the stars. Why? Yes, because the distances are too vast. When I say never, I mean not in even the remotest foreseeable future. That solution will not come technologically. It will have to come from some new understanding of the fabric of space-time continuum to exploit wormhole travel. 
the fastest spaceships we've ever built. If I put your you on them, that space's fa fastest spaceship is the one going to Pluto right now, the New Horizons mission. That, by the way, it took the astronauts three days to get from Earth to the Moon. That one, I think it took six hours or nine hours, something. It was it was hauling. I put you on that spacecraft and sent you to the nearest star to the sun. Take twenty five, thirty thousand years. Yeah, so give it up. <laughs> and the nearest, the nearest star that's interesting, that has an exoplanet, that is a Goldilocks planet, that would take you 70,000 years. Uh, so have you read Carl Sagan's novel, Contact, or seen the film? Uh, and if so, what did you think of them? I've read half the novel and I've seen the whole film. And I, th I think it, it's a film. I think it's one of the best films of the decade in the 1990s. I put that one up there with deep impact in terms of a film that captures science as, a, as an enterprise, that captures the interaction of science with the general public. Uh, I, I, I'm a fan of all that was attempted in those in that storytelling, and and uh, it, it makes me even say maybe I, I might want to write a story of my own one day. But there's so many there's so many better science fiction storytellers out there that I don't feel the it, it's an urge, but it's not a it's not some kind of inner commandment that I must follow. Um, so apparently there's a story about you talking to James Cameron about him getting the stars wrong in, uh, in the movie Titanic. Yeah. So I, you know, I saw Titanic like everybody else. I saw it much later than when it was first run much later, like six months later, it was still in the theaters. I like played hooky one afternoon, might've been 10 people in the theater and I'm watching it. And then there's, you know, the ship sinks and this guy comes out and Kate Winslet is on this, this plank looking up and. Uh, you know, we know when this ship sank and time of day and longitude, latitude. We know. We know what the sky looked like. And he had the wrong sky. And I was, I was pissed off because <laughs> I don't mind errors or oversights in movies. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to portray an element of me that's not true. What is true is if you're going to boast that your film is historically accurate, is accurate right on down to the wall sconces in the staterooms of the Titanic itself, then the least you can do is get the sky correct. So I sent him a note. I said, hey, you got this wrong. My finest stationery got <laughs> ignored. ignored. Then I bumped into him in Pasadena one time, explained to him about this, and then he was actually contrite. And told me that the bad stuff happened in post-production where they put on the sky. So, okay, that's, that's actually a good answer. But in my immaturity of apology, I wanted him to grovel at my feet, begging forgiveness for having messed up the sky. That's what I really wanted. It would not be until the next occasion that we were together, where he came to New York to receive an award from Wired magazine, where I, I brought it up again, thinking maybe I can get him to, to grovel this time. So that's when he said, oh, last I checked, Titanic has grossed more than $1 billion worldwide. So imagine how much more it would have grossed had I gotten the sky correct. And that just shut me up. My tail went between my legs, and now we were, we were done. I thought. I said, I'm going to give up on this. Then a guy called me out of the blue and told me that, first he said he works post-production for Jim Cameron. And so I said, whoa. <laughs> okay, because Jim had mentioned that the bad stuff happened in post-production. Then I wondered, did I get somebody in trouble? <laughs> and he said, and he, he described the 
the fact that Jim is wants to release a 10 year anniversary director's cut of the Titanic. And he was going to add some extra footage from around the, the bridge of the ship. And so this guy who works post-production was told by Jim to call me because I had a sky that he might be able to use. And then I felt quite triumphant at that point. And that was better than Cameron groveling. <laughs> it was Cameron actually doing something to fix the problem. And so, so it is possible to affect some kind of change in the world. Well, I mean, speaking of affecting change in the world, I mean, you've uh, worked hard to promote scientific explanations over supernatural ones. I was wondering, you know, do you ever hear from people who've changed their minds as a result of something you said? And what do you find is the best approach to doing that? I don't, I spend much less time than you might think trying to get people to think scientifically instead of supernaturally. Uh, most of my time is simply to boost people's science literacy. So in other words, when given the choice, I avoid debates with UFO people. I d avoid debates with religious people. I avoid these encounters because then you're, you're, you're mudslinging at that point. I'd rather get people thinking straight to begin with. And in this way, they then become inoculated against pseudoscientific thought. Uh, okay, so what advances in astronomy and space exploration would you like to see happen in the next 50 years or so? Oh, yeah, I'd like to go ice fishing on Europa, see if there's life swimming around in the undersea ocean. On the, in the There's an ice sheet there because Europa is well outside of the Goldilocks zone of the solar system, and it only melts beneath it from the, the stress from the gravity of Jupiter and surrounding other moons. And so it's a liquid ocean. It's been liquid for billions of years. I want to go ice fishing there. I want to dig through the soils of Mars where there might be aquifers. Mars once had liquid running water rampant over its surface. It's now bone dry on the surface. The, the, the even money says that that same water is now beneath the surface in a kind of permafrost, but there might be sort of warm pockets from one place on Mars to the other. And if that's the case, it would have melted the ice and kept this sort of a warm kind of aquifer. And that's another place to look for life as well. So, next 30 to 50 years, I hope or expect to find life in the universe. And if not there, then in a biomarker in the atmosphere of a Goldilocks exoplanet uh, that it will continue to grow in the catalogs, given that we're only just beginning to analyze the data from the Kepler mission, a mission that is specifically tuned for finding exoplanets of about the mass of the Earth. Okay. And uh, are there any newer upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Just for your, your listeners, in case they're interested, I tweet the universe almost daily, uh, Cosmic Tidbits, and I just tweet at Neil Tyson, N-E-I-L-T-Y-S-O-N. And uh, just recently, I'm very proud, I'm host of a new radio show called Star Talk Radio. And you get all the details on startalkradio.net. But it's not the journalist interviewing a scientist. It's me, the scientist, interviewing pop culture figures drawn from society. We explore ways that science has influenced their lives. And so it just takes a different turn on how you bring science down to Earth. So, guys, thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, that should work for you? Yeah, that's great. Yep, great. Okay, guys, keep, it, keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. You too. Take care. Right. Okay, bye. bye. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Neil deGrasse Tyson for joining us on the show. All right, so uh, uh, the first thing we want to mention is that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is now sponsored by Audible.com. You know, if you listen to very many podcasts, you're probably familiar with what the deal is. But basically, uh, 
if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash geeksguide and uh, sign up for a trial subscription, uh, you know, they'll uh, give us some cash. So, uh, you know, uh, we would really appreciate it if, uh, if people would do that. I mean, I think we're both big customers of, of audible.com uh, and have been for many years. I, I think I've bought, God, probably over 100 books uh, from them, you know, with my own money and everything. Um, so, you know, I've always had a good experience uh, with uh, all the books I've bought. So we're happy that they're uh, interested in sponsoring the podcast. And, uh, you know, we hope uh, people uh, will go check them out. Yeah, it's actually a great way for you to support the show if you're interested because, um, you know, we're going to get paid by Audible if you sign up for a free trial, but then you're actually getting something directly in return for it. Whereas, you know, if you were going to donate money to us by PayPal or whatever, like it would just be donation. Um, so this is a little, sort of a way of donating to us and you also get something in return. Um, but yeah, actually, you know, I mean, what you're saying about Audible being great for, for audio, audiobooks, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually so convenient that I was actually receiving a bunch of free audiobooks in the mail, like from um, from traditional publishers. So I was getting them on CD-ROM, and um, you know because I, I reviewed audiobooks and, and whatnot. And so, uh, but because it's so so much of a pain to like you know to to rip a, a, an audiobook on CD and put it on your iPod, I actually was still spending money at, at Audible buying stuff just because it was convenient to put it on my iPod. And and really that I mean once you listen to audiobook that way, that's the only way to do it. Um, you know because it's like it remembers your place and it's all on the one little device. You don't have to carry around like a box of CDs and everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's great. And actually, I mean, you know, I've been reviewing for audible.com for a while here lately too. So, um, you know, uh, and I've mentioned on the show, a couple of the, the audiobooks that I read and really enjoyed. So you can, you can actually go to audible.com and, and look up my name and you can find all the different, uh, audiobooks that I reviewed and, uh, thus recommended. And, um, you know, so it's, yeah, so it's audiblepodcast.com slash geeksguide, or you can just go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and just click on the ads there for, uh, for audible.com, and that'll take you to the, the page where you, you sign up. And we'll have a link in the show notes, too. All right, but so our first topic for today is, uh, you know, speaking of aliens and stuff, there is this new alien movie that came out called I Am Number Four, and I went and saw this dumb movie. <laughs> Thanks for taking um, it for the team, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's not it's not good. Um, the uh, the best review I saw is this guy Eric Childress, and he says, "I am number four indeed, because this is a movie that just took two gigantic dumps on my brain." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean it's it's not really worth seeing, I, and I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't really expecting it to. It's actually better than I was expecting it to be. Um, but still not worth seeing. But sort of the reason I was interested in going and checking it out is because I had read this article about sort of some of the story behind the story, um, and that's actually kind of interesting. So uh, there was this article by Suzanne Moses in New York Magazine titled James Frey's Fiction Factory, and this uh, this I Am Number 4, it's based on a, a novel that sort of came out of this, this weird uh, collective writer's thing he's putting together. Um, we'll have more to say about that in, in just a bit. Um, yes, I mean, if you don't know who James Frey is, he's this guy a couple of years ago, he published this memoir, uh, a million little pieces that was ostensibly about his, uh, sort of crazy life of crime and drugs and addiction and recovery and stuff. And, um, he was on Oprah and the book was a big bestseller. And then, uh, sort of, uh, people started investigating this crazy life story and, uh, sort of, 
it turned out that he had exaggerated uh, quite a lot of it. Uh, the here's sort of a, a the key section from Wikipedia. They say. Uh, the smoking gun alleged that Frey had never been incarcerated and that he greatly exaggerated the circumstances of a key arrest detailed in the memoir, hitting a police officer with his car while high on crack, which led to a violent melee with multiple officers and an 87-day jail sentence. In the police report that the smoking gun uncovered, Frey was held at a police station for no more than five hours before posting a bond of a few hundred dollars for some minor offenses. The arresting officer, according to the smoking gun, recalled Frey as having been polite and cooperative. Hmm. So not high on crack and over a cop with his car. Hmm. Well, that's that sounds pretty similar, actually. <laughs> so, I mean, this actually, this whole story broke. I was in grad school at the time, and man, for months, it seems like it was all anyone could talk about. It was just, it was this huge story. And uh, it sort of led to this, uh, this whole uh, sort of domino effect of, of people looking into memoirs and uh, finding out that they they were exaggerated or made up or whatever and uh that you know that memoirs had just become uh, such a hot selling genre that people were, were just basically publishing you know books that they couldn't sell as novels that were really novels were just kind of being packaged as memoirs and, and sold that way and uh you know but anyway after after all this came out you know frey was sort of uh went back on oprah and was browbeaten and <laughs> then his agent dropped him and his publisher dropped him and um so this is sort of he's he's reappeared now uh with this uh this sort of yeah I guess he's he's been going around to uh like MFA programs in Manhattan and sort of offering to sign people up to uh to write commercial sort of um you know by design highly commercial novels for him you know so so this the, the woman who who wrote this article that I mentioned uh Suzanne Moses she said she was actually a student in one of these MFA programs uh, at Columbia and so he came to her class and, and she sort of talks about her experiences when he came to her class and, uh, you know, from talking to the other students and, and stuff. And, and so the, the guy who wrote this, um, this I Am Number Four novel was uh, a guy who was also from the Columbia MFA program. And uh, let's see if I can find the... Uh... Are you going to say you're going to try to find the guy's name? Because it certainly isn't on the book anywhere. <laughs> yeah, the, the book, by the way, it's, it's sort of... Uh, putatively a, a collaboration between Frey and, and this guy, but it, it's, it, it's, it was published under a pseudonym. But uh, the, the quote I was looking for is, uh, the, the article says, Frey believed that Harry Potter and the Twilight series had awakened a ravenous market of readers and were leaving a substantial gap in their wake. He wanted to be the one to fill it. There had already been wizards, vampires, and werewolves. Aliens, Frey predicted, would be next. I mean, so that's basically what what I'm number four is. It's like Twilight, except with aliens instead of vampires. Um, and so that's the the idea he gave to this this guy, Toby Hughes is the the author's name. This uh, this MFA student. And so so he wrote the book um, uh, and was signed to a really sort of um, uh, exploitative uh, contract. At least according to this article, I'll read you what it says. Uh, it says. Uh, Hughes wrote the novel without any compensation and signed a contract without consulting a lawyer that specified that he would receive 30% of all revenue that came from the project. The book would be published under a pseudonym, and the contract stipulated that Hughes would not be allowed to speak publicly about the project or confirm his attachment to it. There was a $250,000 penalty Frey could invoke if Hughes violated his confidentiality terms. Hmm. I don't know, I guess, you know, some people listening might not be that familiar with the publishing industry and sort of what a normal book contract looks like. So maybe, John, do you want to just sort of explain what a standard book contract usually sort of looks like? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, typically in a book contract, you know, the author is going to get full credit for their work. 
And, you know, they're, I mean, it's up to them whether or not they want to use their real name, but, uh, you know, they'll be the credited author of the work. They have, uh, you know, it's up to them whether or not they're going to write sequels to the work and, uh, and you're going to receive um, all of the, the royalties for the work, not just 40% of the royalties um, or 30% or whatever it was. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, for a novel, typically you would get, uh, you know, like around $5,000 or whatever is a typical sort of first novel advance. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so, you know, typical publishing agreement, um, you know, uh, leaves most of the rights with the writer too. And, and so, and certainly there's no, uh, there's not going to be any sort of uh, legal agreement that prevents you from talking about being the author of the work or whatever, which seems uh, pretty ridiculous, but. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there are also work for hire things, yeah. right? Like, could you talk about what, why, why there's this difference between work for hire and creator owned? Yeah, I mean, you know, work for hire agreements are, uh, are you know, very much, you know, they're they're sort of conceived in the same way as what you're talking about with phrase agreement, except that they're typically they're typically not going to be they're not going to be as exploitative as that. I know a lot of work for hire agreements, you know, do sort of uh, treat the author, you know, less well than than you know than they probably deserve, but um, you know, they're going to get paid a flat fee up front, and often that's all they get. They'll get they'll just get the flat fee, and that's it. Um, but the flat fee is usually fairly good. Um, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be probably five figures somewhere along there, depending on what the property is and who the author is and whatever. Um, and sometimes that's all they get and they don't get any share of the royalties. But um, I, I know I've heard for some uh, the more recent books, um, people that I know that have done recent uh, tie-in work, uh, they said that they, they are getting a cut of the, um, the back end. So, you know, they're getting royalties as well. So, yeah, I mean, uh, those are going to vary a lot. Um, but uh uh, I mean, you know, typically that, you know, you would do a work for hire agreement and have it be structured so that the author isn't getting the, the same share they would get if they were um, if they were if they were publishing something that they created themselves is because, well, it's like, you know, they didn't they didn't create the property and, you know, they're they're just working with someone else's characters. And so um, the the owner of those rights has to get a taste of some of the proceeds. So that's why um, they're usually structured that way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of what I wanted to bring up is that in a work for hire agreement, it's not typically something that the author came up with, right? Like if you're writing a, a Star Wars novel or something, obviously you're not going to get intellectual property rights to the Star Wars characters. You know, you're, uh, you're being hired by someone to write, you know, using their existing um, intellectual property. But it seems like in this case, basically, it's like it's, a, it's sort of that kind of contract, but for a book that this guy essentially wrote the whole thing himself, you know, I mean. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, Frey gave him the idea or whatever, uh, from what we can tell from this article. But it's like, you know, giving someone an idea for a book is not writing the book. Um, it's not creating the intellectual property, like you say. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's a big difference between the work for standard work for hire agreement and what um, is happening here. Um, although, I mean, it does sound like this, from this article anyway, it sounds like, Toby Hughes did pretty well financially. There's there's a quote that says, uh, rumors had indeed been racing all over the program about Hughes. Frey had paid off his debt and was promoting him as a rising talent. Hughes was flying to LA to meet Spielberg. He had bought his mother's house and an apartment in the village. He was a multimillionaire. That's what we heard anyway. The article doesn't go on that I could that I noticed to go on to say whether any of those rumors were true or not, but uh, it's at least, you know, a strong possibility it seems that that the, the financially it worked out pretty well, but certainly the article suggests that he was uh, was, was not very happy uh, in the end uh, with with the deal that he'd signed. Um, I expect it's going to work out pretty well for him in the end because uh, since it has gotten out that he is the author of that book, I mean, I'm sure he could probably work that to his advantage and get an actual deal under his own name now, um, doing something else. You know, whether it's 
sort of YA-ish genre fiction or, or whatever, um, you know, he's, he's got some profile now, whereas before he didn't have anything. You know, he was just another MFA student. So, you know, I, I don't know that he can complain too much. I think it probably worked out okay. But, uh, I mean, the part of the article that really sort of struck me uh, and, and made me curious to actually go see the movie was, was this part. It says, uh, uh, the, the, this, this agent began circulating the manuscript as an anonymous collaboration between a New York Times bestselling author and a young up-and-coming writer. Publishing houses weren't certain how to respond. Then in June 2009, a bidding war ignited for the film rights between J.J. Abrams and a joint proposal from Steven Spielberg and Michael Bay, uh, Spielberg and Bay One, for a reported high six-figure deal. This, in turn, sparked publishing interest, and HarperCollins won the book rights together. Frey and Hughes signed a four-book deal. Rights to I'm Number Four have since been sold in 44 countries, and at last count, it's been translated into 21 languages. So, uh, you know, like I said, I wasn't really expecting the movie to be good, but but that did kind of just make me curious, because it made me wonder if there wasn't something there, some interesting idea or, you know, angle or something that, that is what inspired the bidding war and everything. Um, so I went to see this movie, and I sure didn't see anything <laughs> like that. I'm, I'm completely mystified uh, why, why this uh, story would have sparked a bidding war. You know, it just it really seems like if you, would just, you could just pick any 14-year-old boy in the country and ask him to come up with a story, you know, and this, and this, this book is essentially what he would come up with. Mm. Um, the, the story, I guess, if you, don't, if, if you don't know, is that there's a, uh, uh, some aliens uh, living on Earth, and they're the last survivors of a sort of uh, eradicated species. And uh, the, a couple of them, I think nine, are sort of uh, destined to develop superpowers, and they're being killed off one by one by uh, you know, the evil aliens that slaughtered their race. And the main character is number four. And uh, at the beginning of the story, he uh, learns that number three has just been killed, and so he's next. And, um, you know, he's, he's like a teenager, and so he's always moving around uh, to try to uh, stay one step ahead of the, the aliens who are coming after him. So he moves to this small town and, uh, and enrolls in high school and uh, meets a girl and skirmishes with jocks and uh, develops superpowers and then fights aliens. So, I mean, it's, you know, nothing you haven't seen uh, a million times before. Um, I guess I'm just gonna. I was just gonna mention. Well, there was. Th I guess there was. There was sort of one one kind of cool thing is that there was this. The these monsters at the end. They sort of look like a cross between a velociraptor and a flying squirrel. Those those were kind of cool. That was actually the only thing really I liked in the movie. But I was just gonna mention sort of like two of the things that that irritated me the most because, uh, I mean, it's it's a mildly entertaining movie, but the um, the, just like the lack of <laughs> internal consistency and logic is just really really annoying. Um, and so there's, there's not really any reason why he enrolls in high school. I mean, you know, they're, they're trying to keep a low profile. And so his, he has kind of this guardian guy who doesn't, uh, who just wants him to hide out. And he, the, and the kid insists on enrolling in high school because he's bored. And, and so he, he, win, he wins the argument. And it just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and I'm kind of like, geez, you know, if I could, like, run through the woods like this kid does, you know, doing crazy backflips and stuff and, like, shoot energy out of my hands and, you know, sort of, I, I think I would spend my days, you know, training to fight the aliens who are going to come kill me that would, you know, decide the fate of the planet. Seems like all that would be, I wouldn't be like, ah, this, that stuff's all boring. I think I'm going to go sit through algebra, algebra class, you know. That'll, uh, that'll be a lot more interesting. Um, 
the same problem with uh, in Twilight with the vampires going to high school, right? I mean, like, why the hell would they do that? They're immortal, and uh, you know, they, they're like you know several hundred years old. Um, or you know, maybe there wasn't high school when they when they were actually teenagers, you know. And so it's it's novel to them or something. I, I still it doesn't make any sense. Have you actually like read Twilight? Uh, no, I've seen the movie though. Oh, all right. See, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't read the book or seen the movie, so I, I can't really it's comment so on that. <laughs> it's so horrible. Um, I actually like you know. So I I wanted to see it because I you know I had this opinion of it from having heard about it, and but I wanted to see it for myself and. Um, you know, I was asking my friends and, you know, I asked Twitter and I said, well, you know, should I just try to watch it by itself or should I watch it with the riff tracks? Um, you know what that is? Uh, uh, you know, you know, mystery science theater. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so riff tracks is like, basically it's, it's, it's like mystery science theater 3000. I mean, with the same guys who did that, um, you know, Mike Nelson and, and some of the others, I guess, uh, uh, it, it's, so it's like mystery science 3000, except that it's just like a little MP3 file that you download. Uh, um, and then you can play it, you play it along at the same time as you're watching the movie and you just sync it up, you know, and, uh, and then that way, like you're watching it with basically mystery science theater 3000 playing in the background. Um, and you know, they make fun of the movie and everything. So, uh, you know, even with that, it was pretty hard to watch. I have to say, you know, um, you know, and I mean, that certainly helped because then there was some, some mockery to help it go down easier, but you know, it's pretty terrible. But the, uh, the other thing in, in I'm number four that really bothered me was that, uh, you know, that his guardian guy has kind of this, some sort of computer program that erases photos of him from the internet so that whenever somebody takes his photo, you know, it just like goes out onto the web and erases it to make him harder to track. But then the girl that he falls for is this photographer. And so she takes all these pictures of him and he's, uh, he looks at her website and sees that she's uh, taken all these pictures of, of him and he's really touched, but then they all sort of blink out one by one as the algorithm goes to work, deleting them. And, uh, then it never, you know, until you're expecting then the next time he sees her, she's going to be like, Hey, you know, Hmm. every time I take your picture, it gets deleted from my website. That's kind of strange, isn't it? And it's just, it never gets brought up again. You know, it's, it's, it's just like one of those things where like nothing in the world fits together. Um, and like they have like these swords kind of like they have these swords with sort of glowing pommels and, uh, some of the characters are just sort of holding them in some scenes, but they never really do anything in the story or anything. And, uh, it was kind of funny that there was, there was this article, you know, in this article I mentioned, there was a quote where, where they say, uh, the, 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 the author says, you know, Frey uh, encouraged me to start imagining product placement. Quote, think Happy Meals, uh, because merchandise is where you make money in these deals. He mentioned the Mogadorian swords in I'm Number 4, which were described with unusual specificity. Quote, we added that after Spielberg told us you needed stuff to sell. Hmm. So, so, yeah, I guess uh, sort of if what you're saying about Twilight is, is true, that they, they actually did a pretty good job of, uh, you know, making Twilight with aliens. Um, right. I don't know. I do actually. I, I just I recommend people go go read this article because uh, I think you'll uh, be a lot more entertained by it than you will by the by the movie. All right, but so yeah. So I mean, the next thing I wanted to talk about was was kind of that um you know when uh when we when we interviewed you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he was sort of talking about how he was sort of thinking that probably out there there are aliens that are just so much more intelligent than we are that you know we we wouldn't be able to understand their simplest thoughts and you know that we it would be like the relationship between a chimpanzee and, and us would be like the relationship between us and these aliens. And I've kind of been thinking about that because, you know, sort of, you know, it's sort of a, a, a common idea in, in science fiction, the idea of just, you know, incomprehensibly superior alien races and things. And I've, I've never been quite sure if I believe it or believe that or not. 
the, the, the sort of the totally incomprehensible part. Um, I'm, I'm reminded, you know, one time I was at a convention and I was talking to this guy about a book and he said it was about incomprehensible aliens. And so I sort of asked him a little bit more about what the story was. And he said that, you know, in, in the story, Earth is at war with this alien race and they just seem to be aggressive and we don't understand why they're at war with us or why they're attacking us. Um, but then it turns out that uh, that the aliens have this religion, that they're the only intelligent life in the universe. Mm. And so like any other species that kind of acts in an intelligent seeming way is just like blasphemous to them and they feel like they have to eradicate it. And and so when he said that, I'm like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that's perfectly comprehensible, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Um, and you know what, what book that was? Or? Uh, I think it might have been called The Dark Wing or something like that. But um, I don't know. I, I didn't read the actual book. I just it was just this conversation I had. But it seems like every every year or most anyway, conversations I have with people about incomprehensible aliens, it always turns out that there actually are they actually are comprehensible, basically. You know, it's just that that there's a big difference between, you know, and an aliens that we don't understand and aliens that we can't understand and that most aliens turn out to be aliens that we don't understand rather than aliens that we can't understand. Mm. Um, and. I'm just not sure I believe the you know believe that there are aliens whose motivations are completely incomprehensible to us at any level of simplification or abstraction because sort of any aliens have to deal with the same basic reality that we do you know um Neil deGrasse Tyson was sort of talking about how chimpanzees can't understand our simplest thoughts and, uh, I mean, I know what he means, right? But sort of when I was listening back to that, it sort of occurred to me, well, you know, my simplest thoughts are like, I'm hungry, you know, <laughs> or I'm tired or whatever. And certainly a chimpanzee can understand those kinds of thoughts that basically any, any evolved organism, uh, will have, will, will understand those basic sorts of, you know, facts of, of being a, a living organism. And, uh, you know, that when we look at essentially any any animal behavior i mean there may be i don't know if there probably are animal behaviors that we still don't understand but uh, i don't know if i believe that there are any animal behaviors that we just can't understand and so i think the the, the question is you know isn't that are there aliens who are smarter than us because you know there almost certainly are but I, I i sort of think that the issue is kind of like if you go up in intelligence from from where we are is there stuff to understand in terms of motivations and things like that 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 aren't accessible to us at all? And I mean, it seems like the biggest difference between animals and us in terms of like not comprehending motivations would be like moral reasoning. You know, I was thinking about how like lions, right? You know, there'll be like the the top lion and he's got all the females and they're all having his cubs and then a younger lion will come along and kill that male lion and take his place and then kill all the cubs and i don't think the lions ever think about you know like is that the right thing to do or not they don't have those kinds of brains but it seems like right we're evolved that animals have to be able to sort of think about what other animals are thinking or what you know to sort of predict what they're going to do so like if there's a lion chasing me and you know i, I think like What's he going to do? How can I hide from him? Stuff like that. And so as your brain evolves and gets more complicated in terms of being able to think about what other animals are thinking, you eventually get to a stage where you can model the minds of other animals well enough to start to wonder, 
you know, well, how does that animal feel, you know, feel about what I'm doing to it? Um, and that's where you sort of get this sort of moral reasoning. So our motivations can change a lot at that stage. But then I think the question is like, is there anything in the nature of moral reasoning or philosophy or things like that um, above sort of what we, uh, we can currently comprehend? I mean, one thing I, I wonder about is, you know, we have all of these sort of moral disagreements in our society. And I sort of wonder if someday some, you know, some, some aliens might land and just settle them for us, you know, say, you know, the liberals are right or the conservatives are right. You know, trust us, we're a thousand times more intelligent than you are. <laughs> you know, is, is that possible? Or do aliens who are a thousand times, who are a thousand times as intelligent as we are, would they still be having the same sorts of disagreements because they're not actually disagreements that can be solved by just more intelligence or more facts or, or whatever? So, I mean, I have no doubt. I mean, you look at things that are smarter than people or more intelligent than people in particular areas, right? Like, um, I don't know, you know, like there was just this, this Watson computer um, that was on Jeopardy and just, you know, slaughtered all the humans um, at playing Jeopardy. And, and so, I, you know, I just sort of, I can imagine, you know, I can imagine aliens who are more intelligent than us and having perfect recall or a much faster command of facts or, you know, they can do extremely complicated math very quickly in their heads, you know, things like that. But, you know, like, like Watson, I mean, I can't do, obviously, what that computer can do. No human can, but it's not beyond human comprehension, right? I mean, like, the humans who designed it understand perfectly well what it's doing, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think if, uh, if, if an alien race was so far advanced that we would have trouble comprehending them, like, I think they would probably be smart enough to be able to make themselves comprehensible. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be able to uh, explain stuff to us in such a way that we'd be able to understand. You know, uh, it, seems, it just seems like that any, any alien race that uh, w was so far advanced, um, you know, they, they'd be able to figure out a way to communicate with us. I mean, you know, we might not be able to communicate with them if they didn't want to communicate with us. But, um, you know, coming from their point of view, I'm sure they'd be able to figure out a way. That was another thing I was thinking about is that Neil deGrasse Tyson was sort of saying, well, maybe we're so dumb that, you know, they just don't want to talk to us because, mm -hmm. you know, we have nothing interesting to say. But I was kind of thinking like by analogy, you know, if, if, if they're more advanced, if they're as advanced above us as we are above chimps or whatever, like people still talk to chimps and, and, and other animals, right? I mean, and, and often prefer talking to their cat or their dog or whatever, as mm -hmm. opposed to talking to other people because there's just something sort of endearing about their simplicity, you know? So I wonder if, you know, even if alien, even if there were, you know, vastly superior aliens, they still might want to talk to us for, for a similar reason, you know, that they would just thought we were cute or something or, you know, I, mean, I, I think that's a, that's a very, that's a very, um, it's a very natural thing, at least for humans to, to sort of seek intelligence in, in other living creatures and to like, you know, sort of, to, to attribute human qualities to other animals and, and to find sort of similarities with us in them. Um, you know, who's to say if that's actually a natural thing like that all living things experience or, you know, if it's just sort of a human tendency. I mean, I don't know if, I'm sure there must have been studies of, about animals um, and doing that kind of behavior. I don't know if, um, if, if, they, if they do, like, you know, uh, if like you, if you put, um, if you put a chimp in a dog, in a, in 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 a in an enclosed area, and they you know would, would they would they be friends? You know, like I mean, like like dogs and humans be uh, would be friends. You know, um, seems like know. on the news you always see there's a story about you know somebody's parrot is friends with the cat, or mm -hmm. you know the cat is nursing the 
mice yeah, or something. True. true, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but again, you know, I mean, it's hard to say if that's you know a, a product of life on Earth or if it's a, sort of a natural thing that like any alien species would uh, would do. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think that I think that most I, I kind of see curiosity as a side effect of intelligence. So you know, I mean, I, I don't I don't know that you could get to be the supremely intelligent intel, uh, alien race. Um, and not be curious about, you know, the world or universe that you live in. And, I mean, if you if you discover that there's this other race that appears to be intelligent, I mean, and, you know, but I, I, I think that it would, be, it would be like by any 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 intel, any alien race's metric, we would have to be seen as somewhat intelligent because, I mean, we built a bunch of stuff and we changed our planet and, you know, we've done all this stuff. I mean, you know, that obviously there's a complex mind at work. Um, so I mean, I think if they discovered us, that then they clearly they 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 would want to at least study us, uh, if not make contact. And I mean, I could see how um, if they if they witness us from afar or, or see see any of the TV signals that we've been beaming out into space for for generations, you know, they might be hesitant about making contact because we seem dangerous and warlike. But um, you know, I, I certainly think they would be curious about us at the very least. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like I mean, you sort of were were asking, you know, like is the instinct that makes a person want to go up to a cat and say, "Oh, hey, kitty, kitty, kitty," you know, you know, and talk to it, even though you know it's not understanding what you're saying. I mean, is is that a, a universal sort of mm-hmm. instinct? And you know, it it, it may not be, but it, it seems like it's fairly likely that it's at least fairly common among social animals. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, um, solitary animals or whatever, and. Uh, it seems to me that non-social aliens are unlikely to create the sorts of civilizations, you know, that would be exploring the, right, ga- the right. galaxy or whatever. I mean, it just they're just. It seems like you just need a certain amount of cooperation and sociability to produce that kind of uh, endeavor. You know, um, actually, that reminds me of like one of my favorite um, examples of of science fiction that deals with like an, like you know trying to communicate with an alien species um, is this novel Starplex by Robert Sawyer. And uh, there's it's it's a sort of a it's sort of a just one part of a of a grander story, but um, there's these dark matter entities um, in the book, and there's this great scene where they're where they're like trying to figure out how to communicate with them, and and just like the you know the sort of ingenuity of of, of like trying these different forms of communication to uh, and, you know like how do you you know how do you communicate with with something like this like you know what's universal and that kind of thing, and so like I, I always find that really interesting when you when you can come up with you know, that kind of scenario that I haven't seen, like you know, it's like a familiar scenario that I've seen before, but it was done in such a way that it was like, oh wow, this is this is really interesting, and I haven't seen it done this way before. Well, I mean, you you sort of alluded to this like TV sci-fi phenomenon where yeah. the aliens all look like human beings, you know, except they have funny noses or ears or whatever. And I mean, obviously, they do that on on TV just for practical reasons. Um, but that was like that was something else that was bugging me, and I am in this I am number four movie is that it's just sort of passes without comment that the aliens look exactly like human beings. You know, sure, that was okay. You know, for Superman, what eighty years ago or whatever. But I, I just don't think it's it's acceptable in science fiction right now to just have this presumption that aliens would pass unnoticed in human mm-hmm. society. You know, f- just just because that's what they look like. I, it just that just strikes me as so outlandish. Um, and you know, it, it would be another thing if they have disguises or you know they were engineered to look like us or something like that. But um, I mean, and I, I think there that maybe. We need to draw a distinction between evolved organisms and sort of technologically created intelligences, right? You know, I have a little trouble believing that evolved organisms could be that incomprehensible to us. It may be that once they start genetically engineering themselves or um, 
you know, melting with technology or whatever, that they become something far stranger. But I don't know. I, I still, I just keep coming back to this issue of, I don't think that logic is specific to one planet. Um, it, it just seems like no matter how smart something is, there are just certain basic ground rules about what reality is that would allow us, you know, like, like aliens might be like sucking energy out of black holes in a way that we can't understand, but we can understand at some level of abstraction or simplification that like there's a resource that they need and they're getting it. And that's why they're doing this or something like that. Mm. You know, I, I just, I have a hard time imagining what, what sort of thing there could be that couldn't be abstracted that way. And obviously it's like, it's a bit futile to talk about, because obviously we can't come up with an example of something that's beyond our comprehension. Right. I mean, that's sort of, I was sort of thinking about like, what are some of the limits of the limits of the human imagination? And I mean, like, so like, like the best example I can sort of, that sort of comes to mind is that we can't think in more than three dimensions that, you know, you can't imagine a, a four dimensional, you know, an, an object that exists in four spatial dimensions. You know, it's just sort of hardwired into the human minds to, to think in three dimensions. And that's sort of, you know, something that maybe aliens or, or some sort of a more advanced intelligence could conceptualize that we can't, but that doesn't still doesn't touch on motivations. You know, I think there's also just the issue of like how much more intelligence does you any good. You know, we're getting to the point where a person of fairly low intelligence who has access to Google could produce whatever information is necessary, just as well as some super intelligent person with access to Google. Uh, and so it may just be that there's sort of a ceiling on how useful intelligence is that you get to a certain point and as long as you have access to computers you know that you yourself the organism itself being any more intelligent beyond that point just isn't of any practical value all right but so so moving on to our next topic uh, we were just going to talk about some uh, some science fiction stories that deal with astronomy and stars and black holes and stuff like that and so the first story i wanted to mention was it's called inconstant moon uh, by larry niven sort of the the setup of the story is there's, there's this guy, and uh, he's just sort of in his apartment one night, and he suddenly notices that the moon has just grown unbelievably bright. And uh, he realizes that, that what this means is that, uh, that the sun has gone nova and, you know, has, has fried everyone on the day side of the planet. And so that as the planet rotates, uh, the, the far side of the Earth is going to be fried as well. And so, so essentially, you know, this, this is the last night on earth. And, uh, you know, so he calls up his girlfriend and, you know, tries to, tries to not give away what's going on, but sort of have, have a fun, fun last night together. Um, and there's just all sorts of really, this is a story that it's just really made by the scientific detail. There was just, there are just great scientific details in it. So like, uh, his, his girlfriend, uh, uh, has a telescope and sort of watches the stars. And so it turns out that she's actually figured out what's going on too. And that she had looked, uh, she had noticed the moon becoming very bright and sort of had the same thought that he did. But then, then she looked at Jupiter and noticed that Jupiter wasn't any brighter. And so then, you know, if the sun has gone nova, then obviously Jupiter should be lit up too. So maybe something else was going on. But then, you know, she realizes that it, it takes longer for the light to get to Jupiter uh, than to the moon. And so, you know, when she looks again, Jupiter is now lit up too. And so just stuff like that is, is there's just like great details like that in the story. Um, I mean, that, that reminds me of the, the, another classic story, uh, Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. Um, I mean, it's been years since I read it, but um, I'll, I'll try to sort of talk about it a little bit. But 
you know, basically it's set in this world where, um, you know, I, I believe there's multiple, there's like multiple stars or multiple sources of light anyway. And so um, there's like never any darkness on this planet. And so, um, but then, uh, but then an eclipse happens, uh, which had like never happened or whatever in the, in the, in the civilization's history. And so they just like completely freak out, um, you know, and thus the title Nightfall. But um, I always thought that was really like really clever and, and cool. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like, like imagine, imagine that. Like if you lived in this world where where there never was darkness, and then all of a sudden there was suddenly darkness out of nowhere, um, you can see how that would uh, really freak everyone out. But I'm I'm sure you've read Nightfall, right? Yeah, yeah. And we actually, you know, we talked about that back in episode seven when we were uh, talking to Steve Uly of Escape Pod, and, and he was talking about they actually ran that. I think it's episode 100 of Escape Pod. Um, so if if people are interested in that story, you know, you, you could go and listen to it, uh, you know, right now on Escape Pod. I mean, uh, another one I wanted to to mention was this other Larry Niven story. It's called Neutron Star, and uh, this is set in his known space universe, which is just uh, it's sort of this um, you know linked series of of books and stories, and it's just really really fun. But uh, so so in this story, he has he has sort of this uh, uh, c- continuing character named Beowulf Schaefer, and uh, as the story opens, uh, Beowulf Schaefer uh, he's sort of a, a a starship pilot or something, and the company that he worked for has collapsed, and so, uh, so he, you know, he's half a million dollars. They call him stars in in debt, and once his creditors figure figure this out, he's going to get tossed in debtor's prison, uh, you know, which has made a comeback uh, in this future. So as he's trying to figure out what he's what he's going to do, this uh, this alien comes to him with a with a uh, a proposal, um, and this is just just one of the coolest uh, alien species uh, that anyone's come up with for science fiction. They're called puppeteers. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of look like, I don't know, sort of like three-legged horses, I guess, with just sort of one leg in the back. And then instead of a head, they have two long necks, and then each neck has a head on it. But the heads are these kind of like small, weird things, and the brain is actually in the chest kind of area, I guess you would say. Um, so the heads don't have any brains in them, um, but they can they can both sort of talk and look around and. The mouths are very um, uh, agile, and so so they, you know, they don't have hands. They just do everything with their. They manipulate objects and stuff all with their mouths. But uh, so so anyway, so this puppeteer, you know, comes up to the main character and says that uh, you know that they've discovered the. They found the first neutron star that's been discovered in this in this uh, universe, and uh, they had sent some uh, some explorers to go uh, take readings of it, and the explorers had been torn apart. And uh, the puppeteers, they their their spaceships are uh, you know supposed to be completely indestructible and completely immune to any sort of you know energy or magnetism or whatever. And so uh, this could be bad for business if it gets out that people were were harmed somehow using one of their ships. And so they they want him to repeat the uh, the expedition and try to figure out what's what's going on. And he sort of gets blackmailed into, into doing this. So uh, so he ends up uh, as the story opens, uh, he sort of flying down toward this neutron star knowing that something's going to try to kill him so it's just a just a really fantastic story although there's something about the story that's that's bugged me ever since i read it when i was a kid and that's that there's some natural you know there's some real life phenomena uh attributable to to neutron stars that's that's the explanation um but it's always it's always sort of it's always sort of bugged me because i just can't believe that you know if larry niven sitting in his study can you know realize that neutron stars have this property and build a story around it. 
the people hundreds of years in the future and aliens who actually build spaceships and fly around and stuff, you know, wouldn't have thought of this. And I mean, there's a little bit in the story to try to, to try to justify that, but it's just, it's just something that kind of irks me is I just don't believe that spacefaring civilizations wouldn't have thought of the kind of stuff in this story. You know, don't they read any science fiction for one thing? Um, well, that's the, that's a, that's a problem with a lot of uh, science fictional concepts. It's like, well, gee, if they had just read any science fiction, they would have surely figured this out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so another story I wanted to talk about, um, there's a short story I published in Lightspeed called Infall by Ted Kazmatka. Um, it's in the December issue. Um, and so that one was a pretty interesting uh, use of uh, black holes. Uh, in, in that one, um, he, uh, there, there's a backdrop of some sort of religious war conflict uh, thing going on on Earth. But then in order to, to make somebody talk, they take him up into a spaceship and they sort of, they're going like towards a black hole. And the idea being that like, you know, he would never get his reward in the afterlife um, by dying because, you know, if they plunge him into the black hole, then, you know, he's sort of, you uh, sort of be like trapped forever on the black hole and we should like never actually die. And so it was sort of a clever way of, of getting around the, uh, the whole uh, religious idea that, you know, oh, well, you know, I, 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 torture can't harm me because, you know, I'll, I'll get my reward in the afterlife sort of thing. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. That's actually, you know, the, the next, the last thing I was going to mention, it's, it's sort of uh, built around a similar idea, but it's, uh, you know, Gateway by Frederick Pohl. And this is, uh, it's set in a universe where um, humans are sort of exploring outer space and we find this uh, abandoned alien space station. And there are just all these ships, but, uh, and, and just nobody, nobody can figure out why the, the aliens who built this place uh, have, have vanished. Um, but so each of the ships is kind of programmed to make a hyperspace jump and to come back, you know, but, but nobody knows where, uh, where any of the ships are uh, programmed to go. And so it's, it's sort of like this, this game of Russian roulette where people sign up to, uh, you know, to make a jump and come back and try to bring back technology and artifacts and stuff like that. And a certain number of the ships just don't ever come back and, you know, nobody ever finds out why. But so, so the actual plot is that there's the, you know, one of these guys uh, who, who, who signs up for these jobs. Uh, something horrible has happened um, on his last uh, trip, and he's all sort of psychologically messed up about it. And so he's sort of going through these counseling sessions with this uh, sort of robotic therapist. And so as he's telling, as as he's sort of talking to this robotic therapist, uh, you know, sort of the story emerges, and uh, and and the, the sort of the climax involves, you know, the the, the horrible thing that, that that's happened to him involves a black hole and sort of some of the sort of odd uh, properties of, of a black hole. When we were prepping this show, I, I was thinking about what things I would talk about in this segment. And, um, you know, uh, I had a couple of different anthologies that's just sort of, uh, without mentioning the stories specifically in there, but just sort of mentioning the anthologies as a whole. Um, there's a couple by Byron Price. Uh, one's called Universe, um, and it has, you know, Isaac Asimov, Greg Benford, Ben Bova, Ray Bradbury, you know, all those major, major science fiction writers like that. And, and so they all write, um, they all write stories about some sort of, uh, sort of astronomical phenomenon. Um, like, you know, there's, there's stuff about quasars, there's stuff about star birth, there's, uh, stuff about supernovas and that, that kind of thing. And, uh, but then also there's, there's essays written by scientists. So it's actually a uh, kind of like light speed where, you know, you have, you have a story and then you have a, the articles sort of talking about some concept in the, uh, in the story. Um, and so that, it's a pretty interesting anthology. And then um, he also has one called Planets, which is, you know, basically it's like a tour through the solar system. And so you have 
you know, you have a story about Venus, you have, you know, you start, or I should say you start with Mercury, go to, go to Venus, then Earth, then Mars, and all the way out. Um, and back then, Pluto was still a planet, so uh, you know, there's a story <laughs> about Pluto, too. Um, and it's the same deal where you, there's, there's also articles by scientists. And actually, there's, a, there's another book court, sort of like that one, without, but without the articles. Um, uh, there, there's a whole series of um, anthologies that were just, they're just like collections of stories from Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. And uh, so it's called like Isaac Asimov's Solar System. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's like, again, it's like, you know, it has a story for each planet in the solar system. And, uh, but they're all, they're all stuff that was published in Asimov's. Actually, the, you know, that reminds me, there was a, there was a great story in Asimov's, um, you know, after this anthology came out, but um, like in, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. So there was, uh, there was a story called Shepherded by Galatea by Alex Irvine. Um, and it was, um, it was a story about like uh, mining um, on one of the planet, one of the moons of Neptune or something like that. And that, that was just like, really, that was a really um, interesting story. I mean, I, it's been a while now, so I can't really remember the details, but I mean, you know, it's, it's some sort of um, sort of crazy, you know, SF no mining story uh, on, on one of the moons of Neptune. So, uh, I mean, if you like sort of astronomical SF, uh, I think it would be something to definitely check out. And actually, it was it was kind of a surprise, like, because I've read Alex Irvine stuff before, and I didn't know that he was capable of writing something so hard SF, because it's, like, totally hard SF. And actually, uh, now that I think of it, actually, I should mention, um, you know, I went to this workshop uh, for writers and editors uh, last summer called Launchpad, and it's, uh, it's like, funded by – it was funded by the National Science Foundation, and now it's funded by NASA, I believe. Um, it's run by this astronomer and, and, and SF writer named Mike Brotherton. Um, and so it's basically a workshop to, to teach writers um, and editors uh, real science so that when they write science fiction stories or, in my case, edit science fiction stories, I can – you know, we can – uh, help help have real science be in the story so that um, you know that sort of um, behooves NASA because uh, then you know like people they see the possibilities in science fiction or whatever and they they see that oh well actually some of this stuff will actually be real whereas if if everybody has terrible science then that's not necessarily helping them but anyway so Mike Brotherton um, actually he did an anthology that's online called uh, Diamonds in the Sky and if you Google it or, or we'll have a link in the show notes to it um, there's just a website for it and so. Um, Basically, uh, it was a it was a um, some sort of uh, science funded um, anthology, uh, and the idea being that all the all of the science in the stories is is you know spot on, and, and it's all about um, you know astronomical type stuff. So um, you know, so if you're interested again in that type of thing, uh, you sh- uh, might want to check that out. Um, yeah, so uh, it has like contributions from Jerry Ultion and uh, Will McCarthy, um, you know, from Mike Brotherton. Uh, Mary Robinette Kowal and uh, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Landis and, and you know people like that. So uh, you know it's pretty cool. You know it's got more stuff about black holes and and, and uh, killer asteroids and you know other topics like that. So um, definitely worth checking out as well. All right. Well, and so you mentioned Lightspeed uh, and you have an announcement sort of along those lines, right? Yeah. Um, actually, yeah. So uh, you know I've been mentioning at the top of the show that I'm the editor of uh, Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine, and uh, but uh, fa- Fantasy Magazine. Um, I, while I took over Fantasy Magazine back in October, um, this month, March, is uh, marks the first uh, my first issue as editor um, that you can read. So, um, you know, it came out uh, March first, and so you could buy, or, or I'm sorry, it came out on March seventh. So you can you can buy the ebook uh, now, and uh, and if you go to the website at fantasy-magazine.com, you can uh, read some of the stories. Um, you know, it's like Lightspeed, where we uh, we publish one story every week. Fantasy is going to publish on Monday, uh, whereas Lightspeed publishes on Tuesday. Um, but we publish a story every week along with the related nonfiction, um, you know, some sort of article that's uh, 
plumb some other aspect of the of the story. Um, and uh, so, and then that stuff's all all available online for free. And uh, or else you can buy the ebook version at the beginning of the month and get the whole thing uh, right then. Um, and Fantasy also has a podcast like Lightspeed does. So if you want to listen to some stories there, you can also uh, subscribe to that podcast and uh, and listen. All right, and so I think that's our show. And uh, I mean, once again, we're very happy now to be sponsored by Audible.com. So uh, you know, if you want to give Audible a try, you can you can go to audiblepodcast.com/geeksguide um, and sign up for a free trial subscription. You get a you get a free audiobook. There's no uh, commitment, and uh, or you know, just go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and uh, click on one of the ads there. It'll take you to the page and. Uh, you know, of course, there's also just a donation button there if you want to just uh, send us a donation. We would really appreciate it. Uh, and, of course, we really appreciate it, too, if people go to iTunes and, uh, you know, give us five stars or uh, write a review. Uh, we're up to 40 star ratings and 13 reviews, and we really appreciate everyone who's done that. And, uh, you know, thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.